you know, we have to sort of begin the equity conversation talking about what climate change means for our communities generally. And what we know is that the best phrase that I've heard is climate change is a threat multiplier. And so if you're somebody, either an individual or community who's already living with a challenge, whether it's a lower income or maybe you have an underlying medical condition or maybe you belong to a racial demographic that's been, you know, purposely excluded from getting mortgages for your to secure housing, you're going to feel the effects of climate change more than others. And that's, that's no different with wildfire risk. There's been really um, very good quantitative data that shows, you know, folks who are, um, who are black, who are indigenous, who have lower incomes, who live with a disability, um, you know, who maybe have a different citizenship status, who maybe, you know, English is not their first language. There's, there's a lot of different factors that will make it more likely that they are impacted by wildfires or have a harder time recovering. Hey folks, and welcome to Life with Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Montai. And today is a continuation of our land use series. Um, our first episode was with Molly Mowry. And in this episode, we'll be talking with uh, Liz Foster and Molly McCabe, who have collectively a couple decades of experience in working in land use resiliency. And we're able to provide some really great perspectives on building resilience, especially wildfire resilience in vulnerable communities, as well as urban areas and other um, elements of the wildland urban interface. The purpose of this episode, as well as the other episodes in this mini-series, um, is just to talk about how we can harden our homes and communities and future real estate developments uh, to the reality of wildfire. And both Liz and Molly have done a substantial amount of work in their own communities in this realm. And Liz, in particular, was um, a co-author of the Firebreak Report through the Urban Land Institute. Um, that was how I kind of got turned on to her work. The Firebreak Report is a fantastic resource and pretty thorough in terms of exploring um, what risk looks like and how different communities deal with uh, wildfire disasters and particularly talks about the uh, inherent inequities in wildfire response, uh, recovery, as well as mitigation strategies. That's a very brief summary, but you can check out the link for the Firebreak Report in our show notes for this episode. As with a lot of my guests, these two ladies have resumes that are like a mile long, so I'll try to keep it simple when I'm uh, introducing them right now, but uh, Liz is the former senior manager of urban resilience at the Urban Land Institute, um, which explores the wildland urban interface and its resilience to disasters like wildfires. And Molly McCabe is the owner of Hayden Tanner, uh, where she works in real estate finance and property development with an eye towards sustainability and disaster resilience. Um, you'll hear more about both of their jobs in this episode, but that's the very brief summary of what they're up to. I don't say this very often, but I will say that this episode is a must listen um, if you're interested in learning more about uh, the dynamic web of issues related to disaster resilient communities. Um, that includes you know, wildfire insurance, adapting energy and transportation infrastructure to wildfires, and the inequitable impacts of wildfires on vulnerable communities. I will keep it at that, and I'll let Liz and Molly do the talking from now on. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. My name is Elizabeth Foster. I'm staff with the Urban Land Institute, where I work on climate resilience topics. And I think you've asked me here today to speak about a report that we published called Firebreak, Wildfire Resilience, Stra Resilience Strategies for Real Estate, 
um, as well as to share some insights from technical assistance projects that we've done in two wildfire prone communities. Um, so I am not actually a, a real estate or land use person by background. I come from more of the risk and disaster management world, but have been learning a lot. And so I am specifically here not to share my own experiences, but my organization, the Urban Land Institute, is a membership-driven nonprofit dedicated to providing leadership in the responsible use of land. And so what I'll be sharing today are insights that we've heard from a number of our ULI members who are across the United States and particularly in the Western United States. And uh, happy to be here with one of those ULI members, actually, Molly. Well, thank you so much, Liz. And thanks, Amanda, for having me. I'm Molly McCabe. I am the CEO of Hayden Tanner, which is a strategic advisory and development firm, which focuses on accelerating impact investment and sustainability, very specifically in the built environment. So focus whether that is on an asset level and on a, um, on a portfolio level or at a community level. And I think you asked me here to speak uh, because I recently chaired a, a Urban Land Institute advisory panel in Sonoma County uh, focused specifically on wildfire energy and economic resilience after the last three of four years of fires in that community. Um, and I also, as, as Liz noted, was also on a panel in Northern Colorado, which focused, uh, focused on uh, wildfires and flooding specifically in that region. And I think it's a pretty interesting um, corollary between the two advisory panels. Also, just from a practical perspective, I live in Montana. I am a California native. Uh, my parents lived in Sonoma County. And so we're very familiar with the fires in that region. They have since moved up to uh, Oregon and were impacted directly by the fires in Oregon this past year. Um, and for us, where we live in Montana, every single fall or every single late summer, we have uh, air filters going in our house. And you know, my son can't go outside and play. So we have direct experience in wildfires in our community. Awesome. Yeah. And that really like changes the dynamic a lot because I've never, I've personally never lived in a, in a fire prone community. And I, you know, in speaking with a lot of the people, um, I, I spoke with a friend recently, actually, whose parents had a home in paradise that was affected by the campfire and how traumatized she was just from, uh, smelling smoke last summer in Oregon and the community that she lived in, in Oregon. And it's something that I just, it's something that I've of course thought about, but it's not something that I really have a sort of visceral reaction or like understanding of, of, um, of having, of actually knowing what it's like to, to see a fire on the hillside a couple miles from your house and seeing that smoke and smelling that smoke and recognizing that it's close. But yeah, that's good. That's, that brings a totally different dynamic to, to this conversation. And I am curious, um, kind of what you guys talked about on that panel, uh, the ULI panel for Sonoma County, it just kind of maybe some of the takeaways or some of the key points that you guys were trying to hit on there. Sure, I can give a little background on us being invited to be there in the first place and then yeah. um, Molly can speak to more of the panel's recommendations. So yep. we worked specifically with the Sonoma Regional Climate Protection Authority, which is the RCPA. They're a fantastic organization and they also connected us with leadership at Sonoma County and the city of Santa Rosa, which is the largest city in Sonoma County. 
And um, that community has been hit by wildfires four out of the last five years. And some of those wildfires particularly came into the downtown areas. And so it caused a lot of infrastructure damage and impacted a lot of individuals in the community. They actually evacuated about 200,000 residents in the 2019 fires. I mean, it has just been a tremendous wildfire response up there the last couple of years. And then the one year out of the last four years that they didn't get impacted directly by wildfire, um, you know, they experienced the trauma of seeing smoke and smelling smoke and wondering, you know, if they were going to have another big year. And so we were invited by RCPA to come in and provide some high level strategic recommendations on how to deal with the threats that they're experiencing on an annual basis, but also leverage their real estate and land use strategies, you know, their general plans and things like that, their zoning and their building codes. Um, to set themselves up to thrive in the long run. And so that these repetitive catastrophic events and the high costs of them wouldn't tip them over into a negative downward spiral. They really wanna be proactive and set themselves up. And so ULI has a longstanding advisory services program where we volunteer groups of ULI members will go to a community. We did this one virtual given the coronavirus pandemic, but usually physically go to a community and spend about six days there touring the community and listening to briefings and meeting with usually between 60 and 100 stakeholders to hear a diversity of perspectives and then working pretty clock up some solutions and then present them in a public way. And so um, that's what we did specifically for this project and, and Molly was the one who was really leading the, the content part of that. Awesome. Yeah, thank, thanks, Liz. I think that's a, such a great um, overview of how it worked. Uh, to your point, Amanda, one of the things that's so interesting is you use that word trauma. As Liz said, one of the things that we do is we interview one-on-one -on -one, uh, people in the community, and we interviewed over 60 people in this. Um, and I can tell you that in every single interview, every single interview, trauma, the word trauma came up. And people talked about, um, to your point, talked about having now, currently having go bags in their car. And that every time a whiff of smoke comes in, they look around and wonder if it's close. And I think the, you know, for us, I, I think that was to me a really, you know, telling impact on both community resilience and on, on human and individual um, resilience. Um, one of the key things that we heard was over the past, three, four years, community uh, leaders, you know, even city workers have, have shifted from becoming doing their regular jobs to having a significant component of their jobs being um, emergency response. And so there are a number of sort of just both from a practical perspective, um, economic impacts to the, to the cities and the communities because these people have to do other things. But more importantly, I think sort of mental health and emotional challenges that it raises for a community that is always sort of on the edge. Uh, and so one of the things that we looked at and one of some of our key recommendations were how do we actually bring together in Sonoma County, kind of how do we create one Sonoma? We have a variety of different communities there. We talked about it being a, um, a confederation of hamlets and unincorporated areas and cities. And they're all different. They all have contextually, they all have very different feels. If you're in the city of Santa Rosa, that's a population of about, I think 180,000 people versus if you're way out on the coast in the Redwoods, entirely different from the wine country down over to the Redwoods. And so how do they work together? 
and some of our key recommendations were coming together regionally while also coming up with solutions that were very contextual to each location and how important getting ahead of these, getting ahead of the fires are. So uh, one of the analyses that we did was the economic impacts of this from a land use, well, not just from a land use perspective, which they're spending, I think on average about $2 billion a year just in responding to this. And if you look at that, if you can take that $2 billion, that's just an annual response. And that doesn't include businesses that had to close, um, that people's livelihoods that were impacted, uh, but that's just at the, at the city level. So how do you take that $2 billion, take the money and sort of flip it and say, what if we take say 10% of that money and do preventative work? And, and how do we take that regionally? And if we come together regionally, we can actually have a greater impact and a more comprehensive impact uh, on the wildfire situation. And Molly, I might add on to that in, the, in that one of the other big themes that we focused on in Sonoma, and I was there just sort of supporting and, and listening to the experts on this one, was housing, housing, housing. And, um, you know, some of the key questions that are occurring in Sonoma County, which is, you know, just north of the Bay Area, it has a high cost of living, it has a rising cost of living. Um, and the question is, you know, we have to protect what's there, but there's a fundamental affordability crisis, not just in that community, but across the United States. And so we fundamentally need more housing and specifically need more affordable housing. And this is a national trend with respect to wildfire risk and um, also the best practices of it, kind of working with that tension of, you know, wild, wild uh, housing is both impacted by wildfire risk and also sort of contributes to the problem in that, you know, when you have catastrophic wildfires, they, they often cause a lot of damage. Um, and then the rebuilding can be really challenging. But on the flip side of that, the affordability crisis in a lot of our urban centers, as well as just the desire for suburban living and to live near like beautiful natural amenities. And now with the coronavirus pandemic, with some folks having the ability to work remotely, there's actually a price premium in a lot of these at-risk wildfire communities because people still really want to live there. And so what you see across the United States in terms of land use trends is that we are building in these wildfire risk zones, which is called the WUI or the Wildland Urban Interface. You're gonna hear WUI a lot. Um, and there's, there's a lot to be said in terms of, you know, hardening the development that's already in WUI areas, which are already these high risk areas, as well as thinking really strategically about, there's a big role for real estate to play and a big role for policymakers to play in helping to solve that affordability crisis and in helping to reduce some of the price pressure that exist to build out further and further into these areas. And so one of the things that the ULI members in, um, on the Sonoma panel with RCPA were focusing on is, okay, this is a community that's already trying to do infill development in their urban downtowns. So they're trying to bring a little more density, um, you know, nothing crazy, not skyscrapers, but um, just some different product types that allow more people to live in those urban centers. And that in itself is both a social resilience strategy for the people that live there and helps preserve their quality of life, but it's also a wildfire resilience strategy and that you are concentrating development and people in lower risk areas. Or, you know, if you're in a county, which, you know, or just a re region within the United States, that's all high wildfire risk, which exists in some places, 
concentrating development and concentrating infrastructure and people in a, a tighter area, it's generally cheaper and easier to defend. And so there's a real long-term benefit to, to having that real estate strategy there. Awesome. And you were you were kind of skimming the sur surface of a topic that I've been wanting to to touch on. And I'm not sure if this is necessarily, um, you know, like kind of in your in your wheelhouse. But uh, I do find it interesting that on one hand, you have people like moving into the WUI on purpose because it's beautiful, because they're close to these natural spaces. Um, and then on the other hand, you have um, more low income housing, like in some communities, especially I think in Oregon, you have you have more of these vulnerable communities that are taking up the spaces uh, or that are living in the WUI. Um, I guess I, I was, I'm just curious if you could maybe speak a little bit to um, the discrepancies between how those higher income living in these beautiful spaces, community or groups and those lower income groups, like what, what are the sort of discrepancies between how they both prevent and maybe recover from, from these wildfire events? Is that like maybe a little too, too much of a question? I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely not. I think that's a critical question. I'm really glad you brought it up. I mean, big picture, wildfire risk is fundamentally influenced by climate change, right? We have warmer temperatures, we have drier or more sporadic rainfall, and that creates conditions that are conducive to much more frequent, much more intense, much more damaging and unpredictable wildfires. And so, you know, we have to sort of begin the equity conversation talking about what climate change means for our communities generally. And what we know is that the best phrase that I've heard is climate change is a threat multiplier. And so if you're somebody, either an individual or community who's already living with a challenge, whether it's a lower income, or maybe you have an underlying medical condition or, Maybe you belong to a racial demographic that's been, you know, purposely excluded from getting mortgages for your to secure housing. You're going to feel the effects of climate change more than others, and that's that's no different with wildfire risk. There's been really um, very good quantitative data that shows, you know, folks who are um, who are black, who are indigenous, who have lower incomes, who live with a disability. Um, you know, who maybe have a different citizenship status, who maybe, you know, English is not their first language. There's, there's a lot of different factors that will make it more likely that they are impacted by wildfires or have a harder time recovering. Um, and I think this connects back to, and, and some of this is just resources, right? It takes resources to evacuate. It takes resources to manage defensible space around your home so you don't have, you know, trees catching and burning and then lighting your porch on fire. Um, and I think some of this gets back to the housing affordability question too, from the real estate perspective in that if you have lower incomes, you are probably more likely to be living in an older home and that just might not have the most up-to-date resilience technologies. Um, and retrofitting can be expensive. And so, you know, we can talk about what some of the communities are doing to, to help address those dynamics, but Fundamentally, yes, it's a, it's an incredibly important and relevant question. So Molly, I don't know if you wanted to add on to that. Um, I do want to add one thing that I think is really important. And I think what we have determined is that for any community to be resilient, you have to have a wide range of, of essential workers of people. You know, that ranges from, you know, your critical first responders, like your firefighters, um, law enforcement officers, things like that, nurses, um, and paramedics, but also in many communities that includes the person who runs your grocery store. It's the person who um, is working in your vineyards in Sonoma County, of course. And 
where we had like we looked did a we did a look at sort of some analytics around you know things like people's median salary in Sonoma County, and for an EMT paramedic, the the uh, median salary was just about thirty five thousand dollars. And I can tell you that the median cost of housing in Santa Rosa, which rate rose in the last year by about 11%, was $660,000 to buy a house. It's over a million dollars in Healdsburg. And to Liz's point earlier, the number of people moving into these communities over the last year has risen dramatically, like well over 100% in terms of housing sales. And so what we're finding is that people are, it's really crucial to be able to provide housing at all levels. It's, you know, housing risk is climate risk, is economic risk, which is community risk. And I think those pieces, any community that can take those into consideration and really be very forward thinking in how they, in how they design housing, how they design programs to do house hardening, um, creating funding mechanisms for people who can't afford to do that otherwise, who also create, um, who meet people where they're at. I mean, one of the things that we really have found is that unless you're going out into the community, you know, you may have to be at, a, you know, your local, uh, your local church. Uh, you might have to be at your local Grange, you know, uh, building where the, you know, the, the farmers are showing up. You have to be able to speak to people in different languages. And I think, you know, those are all really critical pieces to having both wildfire resilience, but also equity. Um, so I think those are, I think Liz has raised some really good points and I won't add too much more into that. Well, Molly, you brought up solutions and I just listed problems. So let me just list <laughs> one or two other ideas that I've heard. Um, so we, so one of, uh, one of the ideas is to provide some resources to help folks retrofit or to better manage landscaping around their homes, right? So this is the idea that um, you know, want to create that defensible space where you have zones around your building where you're limiting flammables or you're limiting how those potential flammables are arranged so that they don't basically just provide a matchstick up to the house and then catch it on, on fire. Um, there are, in the research that we did for the Firebreak report, I heard of a few different community examples. So an interesting one comes from Arizona, the Prescott Area Wooly Commission has done um, some pretty innovative financing to help specifically a lower income community in their area do a considerable amount of landscape management to help reduce wildfire risk. And so they're a great example to look at. We have a write-up about it in the report, but they also have some information on their website. So that's a Powick or the Prescott Area Wooly Commission. And then there's also some really interesting um, public-private partnerships in Colorado. I believe it's Eagle and Boulder County, where actually the Realtors Association has teamed up with um, the local government. And then I believe there's also some Firewise USA communities involved in helping to do some of those retrofit programs. And that's an interesting example because I believe there's been some real positive changes to insurance premiums for homeowners. And they've gotten some really nice value there in terms of reduced premiums and not just in reduced risk. So those are some great examples to look at. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I like hearing um, kind of uh, kind of what the problems are. It was great to get a, a few solutions because that was, of course, my next question. Um, but you kind of you mentioned insurance uh, premiums. And I'm curious, you know, I didn't 
I, I admit I didn't do enough research on the insurance front for this, but I'm curious if you guys could give my listeners kind of a baseline understanding of like of what's happening and like um, of, of, of kind of like the dynamic with with insurance premiums, especially in California right now. I know some insurance companies are like just choosing not to insure certain homes in certain areas. Like, can you guys talk about that a little bit? I, like I said, I think, I think I'm actually coming into this conversation with the same level of, of, of knowledge regarding this as a lot of my followers uh, slash listeners will. So just like a one-on-one on, on how insurance is working right now. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things that are really interesting and happening in California right now, first off, they're in the midst of putting together some new maps, which will actually redefine sort of what the, the high risk areas are as it relates to fire. Um, the last maps were done in about 2007. Uh, and so what you're seeing is just a, a significant increase in terms of development in the WUI. And so that obviously increases the number of uh, potential uh, structures at risk. Mm -hmm. uh, what you're also seeing is as compared to decades ago um, that the fire damage is with wildfires just before they were burning mostly forests and sort of you know open lands and now we're moving into where they're actually burning um, housing and other structures so a couple of things as it relates to to insurance um, one of the concerns is that insurance rates will rise i think that the campfire in paradise is akin to um sort of Hurricane Andrew down in Florida back, I think that was in like 92 or thereabouts, which sort of put hurricanes and the shift on the map as it relates. I'll jump in. Molly, you're, you're freezing a little bit. So um, I'm not gonna pick up on the California part because I think we'll have Molly back in a second. But yep. Thank one you, of the, yeah, one of the things that we're hearing across the board from ULI members as we do our climate resilience research is, um, I think it's important to know that the insurance companies already have all the data and they generally have fairly sophisticated data. And there's a big movement um, among the realist, private real estate sectors to match that. And so we're seeing a general trend of more deep dives on physical risk assessments of assets. Um, so, you know, building level as well as entire portfolios, if you happen to be a larger firm, you know, across the country or internationally. And so I think more and more we're seeing a trend to consider climate risk in due diligence, in internal business continuity planning, in discussions about design. Um, and what we heard specifically in the Firebreak report is that there's not necessarily one story with respect to wildfire risk and homeowners insurance. There's some documented evidence for insurance premiums going up. There's also a couple insur homeowners insurance companies that have started offering discounts for homeowners that specifically implement best practices um, through the FireWise USA program. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit hard to generalize across, across the country, but I think one of the key messages is, um, you know, there is a lot that we can do from a building design perspective and a building maintenance perspective and a land use perspective to help bring down some of the wildfire risk or help provide some adaptation. So regardless, we're helping to protect life safety and no matter what potential changes in insurance come up or maybe even potential changes in disaster relief that some of these more at risk communities are getting ahead of that and are more prepared for it. 
So Molly's back. So Molly, you were talking about California. Uh, yes. So sorry about going away. Wasn't intentional. Um, what we're, you know, what California has done, the state of California in November, they they have had in the past, well, fire insurers are required to actually only look backwards in California. Um, and so they have to sort of look at 20 year past histories, which of course is kind of interesting now that things are shifting and you can start to incorporate some of these last few years of fires. Um, so California, so in, as you point out, Amanda, a number of companies were starting to look at pulling out. And so California put a moratorium on allowing insurance companies to pull out. And they, in November, they renewed that moratorium for another year. And it, will, it affects about 18% of the residential market in California. Um, I think it remains to be seen how the insurance industry ultimately responds. But I think Liz's point is correct that what we're seeing is insurance industry and real estate owners and communities are making different decisions about how they help homeowners harden their, harden their properties. And then that we're starting to see those discounts. And I think that's become a much greater, greater focus. And we're seeing this truly, whether it's wildfires or flooding, you know, in other places, you know, uh, as it relates to sea level rise, insurance industry does not want to pull out of some very lucrative markets. And so they're trying to figure out how do we deal with this? Because as you know, we know what's coming. Um, so how do we sort of adjust that? And how do we incentivize good choices as opposed to reactive? choices. I think the other important point to mention with insurance is that it's usually a critical decision-making point in the wildfire recovery phase in terms of, you know, if somebody had significant damage on their home or it was completely destroyed, what insurance covers and if they have insurance is usually a big decision in whether to rebuild and where to rebuild. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, Amanda, so what are some of the equity considerations we heard in the research and we definitely heard in some of the stakeholders um, in our advisory services panel in Sonoma that under insurance is an equity problem um, and is usually experienced by folks with lower income. So that's, that's key point one. The other point is most insurance policies enable homeowners to rebuild exactly what they had. And so this is actually a tension that we heard from a lot of public sector decision makers are grappling with in terms of Okay, so we know that there are really effective building design strategies, you know, decision makers have the ability to pass building codes or policies or various, you know, carrot and stick incentive type things to help or encourage or demand that homeowners implement those, but insurance doesn't usually cover that additional cost. And so one of the things we heard from policymakers in the firebreak research was they are thinking through that tension of okay when we have a wildfire. We want to encourage people to build back more sustainably and more resiliently, but we also know that just blanket requiring that without any help for folks with the current insurance policies is really going to disadvantage some folks and will have a long-term impact and a fairly immediate impact too on the vitality of these communities. And so that's another really important um, conundrum that I think a lot of at-risk communities are thinking through right now. Let me give you a quick example on that in uh, Paradise, California. Um, and I, I don't know if these are numbers are exact, but they had about $18 billion in losses. Only about half of that, about 9 billion was covered by insurance. 
So you have, so, and again, thinking about paradise, which is a very different community than Sonoma, that community was completely destroyed. So they are having challenges rebuilding, which means they're having challenges bringing their community back. Um, their water treatment plant, for example, burned. And so they, without having community members come back because they can't afford to build, it makes it more challenging for them to build their water treatment plant back because they don't have the revenue to support the water treatment plant. So it's this cascading effect on these communities. And so getting ahead of that and into you know, Liz's point, how communities can come up with different policies are really important. Zoning is really important. Um, building materials, all of those things so we can harden are really important, but we also have to come up with solutions about how do we finance that. And there are some interesting ways we can do some bond financing. I just heard about in, um, actually in Connecticut, is, has, is put legislation through to allow the Connecticut Green Bank to include resilience in their financing structures. And so what they're basically covering is that delta between what would have happened and what will happen with this resilience aspect. And so that's how they're covering it. And so that would make available a ton of funding to, to communities, to individuals, to homeowners, um, to do resilience efforts. And I think those are the kinds of solutions that we can see in these communities in, in the West and elsewhere where we're seeing so many wildfires. My next question was just, you know, you guys kind of mentioned hardening and, and establishing community resilience in, in a variety of ways. Um, and I'm curious if you could just speak to, to what that looks like. Again, just sort of a baseline understanding of what land use resiliency looks like in the wildfire realm for, for my followers who may not be um, entirely familiar with that concept or entirely familiar with that, with that dynamic. Yeah, sure. So one of the things that I, I think is important to mention is we, we talk about having asset level, so building by building strategies. And then we talk about having sort of community level strategies and I'll continue to do that, but I want to make the point first that they're not actually disconnected. And some of the strategies apply at multiple scales. So the idea of creating defensible space around a house, for example, which is um, in sort of the best practice recommendation, you envision having three zones radiating out from for the house. You have like a little circle around the house and like a medium circle around the house and a bigger circle around the house. And there's strategies in each of those circles, if you can imagine it, to help slow and then hopefully stop the approach of wildfires toward a building. And so that gets into landscape managing strategies um, as well as sort of where you situate other features like fences or where you store your car, things like that on a property. Um, but there's a lot you can do even sort of before that in terms of how you, where, how you situate a house on a specific lot. So thinking about, you know, you could look at sort of the history of where wildfires are occurring, what direction they're most likely to come from. And you could make sure that your entrance and exit points are oriented away from that. You also wanna make sure you have multiple entrance and exit points to houses. Um, you can think about things like non-combustible materials for your house, which can look like sort of traditional materials like stone, or it can be sort of a newer material that's been specially fabricated to be non-combustible. You can think about things like pitched roofs you know, that are, are extra steep because a flat roof, you have the risk of embers traveling ahead of a wildfire sitting on that roof and having a chance to alight. So it's kind of a simple thing, but we want the embers to roll off the house. Um, so there's a lot you can do kind of at a building by building level. Um, there's an organization called the Institute for 
the Insurance Institute for Building and Home Safety. It's called IBHS. And um, they've been a key partner for us on our research and have provided a lot of input. They have some great, great, very specific guides on what this looks like from a building engineering perspective. Another great resource is the NFPA. Um, the National Fire Protection Association. They have some other great resources specifically for homeowners on this. Um, and then one of the things that was a really innovative idea that we heard during the fire break research and then came up again in the Sonoma Advisory Services panel is the idea of taking that defensible space from a, from a building and scaling it up to the community and the idea of creating community defensible space. So for example, could you cluster your development, you know, new development, into a more concentrated area, which we've already talked about, sort of helps with some of the wildfire fighting priorities. But you could use, for example, your roads, you could create bike and pedestrian trails, which are really high quality of life amenities. And you could have those surround your community and that functions as a fire break would need it. And so we're seeing a couple examples of this happen across the country. So there's a, uh, there's a really large new development in Orange County, California called Rancho Mission Viejo. And they took this approach. They did a data-based assessment of the land, located the homes where it was the least wildfire risk, and then used their roads and pedestrian trails to encircle most of their development um, with that kind of thinking. And we also saw that in a, another master plan community called uh, Avamore in Boise, Idaho, similar strategy. So some really interesting thinking there at a lot of scales. Liz, I think the, the thing that this really speaks to is this question around long range planning. And I, what we have found, you know, going back to sort of original, some of the original conversation we had, you know, these, these decisions we make in land use and policy have long lasting impacts. Um, and we've seen that, I think Liz, you raised this early on some of the equity issues and redlining and things like that, which have had subsequent impacts, you know, generations on. And so we need to be making decisions today in our land use and our zoning and our building codes that actually have long-term um, value and being flexible, recognizing where things are headed, uh, but also, not sort of locking us into one thing. And so I think you know, this is why I love this concept of having these, having these sort of community defensible spaces, because not only are you creating these defensible spaces, you're also creating better communities. You know, then you have the ability, you go, wow, we can go out and go for a walk. We can take our kids out. And one of the things we came up with, which was kind of a fun, um, an interesting practical actually solution out of the Sonoma panel was the question around having animals goats, cows, beavers, uh, actually be vegetation management. So that was a pretty interesting um, analysis. And it was used in the Reagan, around the Reagan Library down in Southern California for a fire that they had there. The goats actually saved the library in many ways because they had actually eaten it down. So again, these are different strategies and solutions that are long-term, but also flexible in nature. Hey folks, just taking a quick break here to say that if you've enjoyed the podcast or learned anything from uh, Life with Fire over the last year or so, that you consider supporting our Patreon. Um, we have options that are $3 a month, $7 a month, and up for whatever um, you know level of financial contribution you're able to make. But beyond financial support, we're also you know perfectly stoked to get new subscriptions or more shares or just simply have you guys talk about the podcast to folks that might be interested in it. 
I've had a lot of folks reach out recently and say that they heard about Life with Fire through a colleague or a friend or on Instagram or whatever. And we love to hear that. And we really appreciate that support as well. If you do support the Patreon at the $7 level or above, we'll send you a little goodie bag with some Mystery Ranch swag, notebooks, and patches, which are pretty cool, I should say, as well as a Mystery Ranch t-shirt if you donate at the $20 level. The Life with Fire Patreon will be linked in this episode's show notes. We really appreciate the support, and thank you, as always, for listening and sharing and subscribing and being awesome. Uh, I was looking for a little information about how we can build better resiliency with the transportation sector. You guys talked a little bit about the about the water infrastructure thing, which is is equally as important. Um, but I'm I'm curious more about sort of the energy and transportation realms. Uh, obviously, with like uh, planned power shutoffs and things like that, it's kind of becoming more and more relevant or more and more necessary to to have um, ideas of how we can build resiliency in those realms. But I'm curious what you guys know about that. Molly, you want to do transportation or energy first? <laughs> uh, how about energy? All right. I, I mean, I think the thing that we learned, particularly when we looked at Sonoma, was the importance of, of you know, we looked at a graphic of, you know, all the lines coming in throughout the community and recognizing that we really needed to think about different implications on uh, these infrastructure. So you know, how do you create sort of a standalone, you know, how do you create ability, the ability to act as an island because of these, these planned power shutoffs, uh, which have had significant, you know, I, I, significant impacts on the economy. And so how do you sort of get ahead of that? So, you know, what we're looking at and what we found it, the panel looked at was how do you reduce the demand on the front end? So that's one key issue. Number two is once you've reduced that demand on the front end, uh, how do you then, you know, sort of create smaller modules like microgrids and so forth so that you're not putting a broad group of people at risk. You're only putting, you know, you sort of have this ability to, for a small group to sort of say, okay, we're up and running. Um, so I think, you know, I think we are looking at that electrification as we look at climate change, the increasing temperatures will, will continue until we really electrify our entire grid. So coming up with new solutions around that and but being forward thinking and being flexible is really crucial. I think, Liz, I know you've done a, a fair amount of work on this. Maybe you could speak to some of the other topics on it. Yeah, sure. I, I think all of those things and, and the energy conversation is just so important and it's also really complicated and it's exciting to see what'll happen in the next few years, especially since right now we're having a national conversation about critical infrastructure. And so when we're thinking about the resilience of electric infrastructure, first thing to note is that a lot of it is in these wildfire prone, wooey wildland urban interface and more rural areas. And so there's an opportunity to mitigate the chances of fire ignition and spread by doing some, you know, utility hardening and, and things like that. But there's also a lot of other potential benefits from addressing energy resilience head on in terms of, you know, the security of critical communications during responses, improving service reliability, especially as we are all, you know, not all of us, um, I'm lucky enough to be one of those uh, who's doing more remote work. Um, you know, there's, you know, we could, as Molly mentioned, we could do more widespread power, power outages. So there's a lot that comes into energy resilience as a topic, 
what we heard, what I heard about most often in the research was first the challenges of connecting wildfire and energy resilience. You know, one, there's some really, really uh, challenging instances of high voltage transmission lines sparking wildfires in recent years. And the challenge with these is they happen really near communities. And so there's very, very little response time for folks to get out of the way. And that's a huge challenge. Um, there's also the flip side of that is there's been instances of wildfires causing a tremendous amount of damage to utility infrastructure. And so this conversation goes both ways. Um, with respect, and then, and then I think there's a bigger picture, which is the thought of an energy transition in the context of climate change and moving away from some of our, um, you know, more, more greenhouse gas emissions heavy sources. And so that's a bigger conversation in real estate and it's a really active one and it's been one for a long time. And so with respect to wildfires, I think one of the most important resilient strategies that the real estate sector can implement is maximizing energy efficiency in buildings. And so if you think about it, I think about one third of all energy in the United States is generally consumed in residential and commercial buildings. That's a huge opportunity. And so if you can lower the demand for energy through building efficiency, that reduces the need for more electric infrastructure in the first place. Um, and also sort of gets to that point of islanding that Molly mentioned. You know, if you have a lower energy demand for to begin with, if you're working with you know, a power loss and you're maybe running off a generator, if you're more efficient, you can run that service. You can have those critical services longer, or maybe you can even have more of them. And so energy efficiency is, is really, really critical. And that's something that um, both private real estate and folks on the public sector side have been working towards really hard the last couple of years. You've seen us, especially a lot of leadership from cities across the United States. Um, and then the other... The other big thing, and we that kind of goes along with the islanding, is just backup energy. You know, where are you getting your backup energy? Um, and increasingly, you know, what what source are you using? You know, a lot of times they run on diesel fuel, and that, in the long term, is a is a climate mitigation issue. So there's there's a lot that goes into it. It's a it's a really important conversation. About your question on transportation. Yeah, kind of the same question, just. Um... And, and this is one that I haven't really looked into quite as much as the energy side of things, just because energy seems a little, it's a little bit more just timely in terms of, um, in terms of news about wildfires in the last year or two. Uh, but yeah, just a little bit about, about the transportation side of things, if you guys wouldn't mind. Well, let me give you a little, and again, I'm not sure whether that's actual infrastructure or, you know, switching to electric cars. Um, let me give you just sort of a, an interesting thing that came out of the Sonoma panel. Sonoma County in specifically is, is focused on the net zero carbon um, strategy and, and the full electrification of the county. And that's true in a number of communities around, because, around the country because communities, you know, cities have traditionally been really way further out than the federal government. Uh, one of the things that we heard was people had a fair amount of, of reticence to go all electric because of the uh, because of the power shutoffs and their concern that they wouldn't you know be able to get out or they wouldn't be able to hear have communication and so forth and and then there's a whole equity issue around that because a number of people can't afford it now all that being said sort of on the negative side um, what we actually found in having conversations with the local utilities Sonoma Clean Power and others is in fact they can actually use the vehicles that you, your electric charging vehicles to charge your house. 
So there are there's interesting sort of tools that can be used to uh, to to uh, creatively solve some of these challenges. And the reality is, is that in, in Sonoma County or in many, most communities, you know, you're probably not going to have to drive more than 300 miles, which is sort of that limitation on your car. And if you can use your car to repower things, uh, you know, there's, so, there's been some really interesting solutions there. Again, going back to this question about equity, I think we have to come up with solutions so that people can afford and people are educated on how these different technologies are used and, and um, why it's important and, and what the value is. Uh, I, I don't know if that addresses your question on transportation because there's a, you know, there are other issues. I mean, what yeah. we found in Sonoma County is you know, what, they, what they did in the emergency was their bus system became their emergency, um, their emergency responders and moving people from the, you know, the local hospitals that had to be moved. So, you know, there's a whole piece around yeah. that piece of transportation as there well. Was, that was a really vague question. I, I was immediately thinking of like, of, of infrastructure. And then when you mentioned, um, you mentioning public transportation and electric cars, that was like a totally, that was something I hadn't even considered. So um, the infrastructure side of things seems like pretty straightforward. It doesn't seem like, you know, I mean, really, I think it comes down to like having an ingress and egress, like having more than one road in and out, which I think was the problem with with paradise, I believe was that there was really only, there weren't, there weren't a lot of escape routes ultimately. Um, so that's obvious. That's pretty straightforward. Well, uh, I just gonna, get, actually, I was just going to comment, Liz. I think that's again, speaks to this long-term planning and the importance of land use and the importance of uh, proactive thinking and how can you use, how can you use, for example, this, you know, this community defensible space that Liz talked about these, this trail system, is that another vehicle to get people another, no pun intended, is that another means of getting people out safely? One of the things that we did when we looked at the uh, Northern Colorado issue was we looked at how the roads were structured and made different, and in an emergency, they actually had the ability to shut off traffic going one direction and only funneling it another, you know, one direction, so on both sides. So again, I think this long range planning component is really crucial to how communities deal with this and getting ahead of it rather than responding just in the moment and being constantly on, constantly in crisis management. Did you have more to add to that, Liz? Just a few more things. I mean, I think I, I am not a transportation planner. And so there's a lot of expertise that others in this field hold specifically on transportation. There are also folks who are experts on evacuation protocols. And there's a lot of lessons learned from research and uh, you know, actual responses on, on that end. Um, I think for folks who are maybe sort of less familiar with land use planning, there's also a lot of decisions that get made, um, you know, local or state levels about things like road widths. So you can have emergency vehicle access. And so there are a lot of things that go into having a resilient transportation network that kind of do come down to the details and are the purview of local decision makers and are an area where folks have a lot of decision-making power. One of the other key considerations in terms of the role of land use planning is also where you can look for co-benefits. And Molly was starting to get to this with the idea of, um, you know, some of the strategies for fire breaks, but there's also opportunities to think about, okay, so if you're in a community where you have really wide streets because you wanna be able to get people in and out really quickly in an emergency, 
those really wide streets encourage vehicular traffic on a day-to-day -day basis, which is not the direction that you want to go if you have really aggressive climate sustainability goals. But there's other things that you can do with that space on a day-to-day -day basis that can be planned for. You know, you can design bike and pedestrian trails and, and things like that that really enhance the quality of life generally. Um, the only other kind of interesting idea that I heard during the research and was, and this is not something that's been implemented, but it was kind of a, just an idea that was floated. So I'm, I'm putting it out there, not as a recommendation, but just as a thing for maybe folks who are smarter than me to consider, is um, one of the experts that we interviewed pointed out that because fires are starting closer to communities and the fires are more predictable and moving faster, there's been some really frightening instances of folks who are in the middle of evacuating uh, experiencing really high risk conditions and really scary conditions and facing the possibility of being cut off from escape routes. And so one of one idea that was kind of floated that I heard was, well, could we, you know, take a look at our evacu eva evacuation routes and maybe plan some sort of safe spaces along the way? So day to day, this could look like, you know, maybe you have um, really large parking lots that are along some of these situations. And now we don't necessarily always want large parking parking lots, but there are some land uses that necessarily, you know, have them. So is there an opportunity to incentivize those to be along big evacuation routes, for example, and then, you know, it would be a safer zone. So I think, you know, this hasn't been tested anywhere. I haven't heard that anybody's implemented it. And I think there's some significant drawbacks and it would always be an option of last resort, but I think there is some creative thinking happening in, you know, transportation and evacuation sectors, which, which might be interesting for folks to look at. Yeah, that's a fascinating option. I hadn't considered that. Um, yeah, interesting. I can imagine that, you know, my first thought was imagining that in sort of a sagebrush, uh, sagebrush sort of landscape, uh, but seeing that in a timbered area would be, you would be, it would require a very large parking lot. <laughs> Um, yeah, and again, don't know if it would work. Just right. I think it's there fun are to think about. Who are, yeah, thinking about other solutions outside the box. No doubt. Um, kind of changing lanes a little bit here. I wanted to hear a bit about Firebreak, the report that uh, that Liz was. You you kind of headed it up. You were one of the you were one of the authors. Can you tell me a little bit about your your role with that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so this was really a collaborative project. Um, I had a leading role in doing a lot of the writing and interviewing, but we interviewed more than 50 real estate developers, investors, policymakers, nonprofits, wildfire experts, you know, land use planners, landscape architects, a lot of different folks um, to ask about wildfire resilience best practices. And so I work for the Urban Resilience Program at the Urban Land Institute. And so broadly, our goal is to strategize and provide resources that help buildings and cities and communities better prepare for and withstand the impacts of climate change. And that goal runs through the research we did with the Firebreak Report in that our goal was to explore the intersections of wildfire risk and real estate development trends to identify what you know, current and potential future impacts might be to look at what the asset and community level strategies are for best practices for mitigation and adaptation, and then to profile really fantastic examples that have implemented this and have realized benefits of it and to share lessons learned from that. And so the report um, does all of those things. I'll also mention that it's this is a freely and publicly available report, thanks very much to the funding from the Kresge Foundation. And so, you know, our intention is that this be a resource for anybody who needs it. 
And then for us as a membership organization, for the report to be a jumping off point for projects like um, advisory services with Sonoma County or the Northern Colorado communities that Molly mentioned, um, or it's a jumping off point to convene utilized membership in real estate and land use to have some of these conversations about, okay, so we have some strategies that we know work and Sonoma is a great example. This is a forward thinking community that yes, has high wildfire risks, but they've implemented a lot of these best practices in real estate and land use from building codes to um, community wildfire protection plans and, and you know, microgrids for energy resilience. They've thought about a lot of these things already. And so one of the key themes that we heard in the report, which is um, fire break wildfire resilient strategies for real estate is the question of, okay, we know some things, how do we scale them up? And that's really what we went to Sonoma County to help them think through. And I think there's a lot of other communities across the, the United States who are doing that. And using you know, the processes that are already in place, comprehensive land use planning, general plans, zoning, all of these tools that are already familiar to a lot of land use and real estate experts, they can also be leveraged for wildfire resilience. And so I think one of the, the key things we haven't talked about, although we've talked about a lot in this podcast already, is um, the role of public-private partnerships. And there's a, there's a big role for ULI to play there too, as well as you know, anybody generally in the profession. And I heard in every single interview that we did for the Firebreak Report that public-private collaboration is going to be key to scaling up wildfire resilience strategies. And so you know, we wanted to provide a resource with the Firebreak Report. We wanted to share some of the best practices that our membership are implementing. But you know, in terms of wider impact, the, the thing that I most hope for is that more folks get involved and more folks start talking to each other and more folks start comparing what is working and not working and come together to really scale up some of those solutions. I think that would be just the best possible impact. Absolutely. Do you guys have any, either of you, do you have any sort of anecdotal, um, anecdotal stories about, about that private public intersection where, um, or not intersection, but co collaboration that is succeeding or that's working? Like, what does that look like on the ground to you guys? I think it can look like a lot of different things. Um, one uh, strategy that we heard from some of the developers that we profiled and talked to for the report is that they're involving wildfire experts in the whole process of development. So for example, um, speaking to wildfire experts at the beginning of the design process where you're thinking about where to situate your housing um, where you're thinking about you know, how to orient your streets. That's one strategy that some folks are already working on. Um, we also saw a lot of collaboration between some developers and their local governments in terms of you know, just planning and in sort of co-developing what, you know, what works and what development should implement for their wildfire resilience strategies. So um, the team in, at Avamore in Boise, Idaho, and again, the team at Rancho Mission Viejo in Southern California are great examples of this, where they, from the beginning, were working with their local uh, public officials on new and enhanced standards for buildings for wildfire resilience. And so there's a great conversation going back and forth there. Um, Amanda, I also believe that, I, I mean, I know, because I've listened to a lot of your other episodes, and they're, they're fantastic, that um, you generally talk with a lot of folks who are in land and forestry management, I think this is a big opportunity, and this is something I heard flagged in the research that um, scaling up, you know, regional land management strategies is going to take a lot more resources and a lot more creativity. And there's some early um, examples of partnerships there. So, for example, um, 
Denver Water in Colorado has done some really interesting partnership work on large-scale land restoration post some of the wildfires they've experienced. That's a great example of a multi-agency partnership to look at and could be a model for others. Fantastic. Molly, do you have anything to add? I can't imagine. Liz knows so much. <laughs> uh, the only other thing I would add are, are some of these funding mechanisms. So like what they're doing with the, they're looking at with the Connecticut Green Bank. We're also seeing that actually up in Seattle in doing some resilience um, type of structures, uh, funding structures. So really having the, the communities, the federal government, the state government and local communities coming in with strategies that help facilitate how do we pay for all of this? And I think that's, we're seeing some really positive efforts there and some very creative structures coming up. Um, you know, as people start to think about, well, you know, what do, what do, how can we use things like renewable energy credits or carbon capture or other types of things as a framework for these types of resilience mitigation strategies and how do we fund that? So I think the positive note, if I can say anything, is that people, you know, as we bring a diversity of of uh, uh, perspectives into the conversation, what we're seeing is a much more creative set of solutions. And I think that's what I would just continue to encourage is bringing that diversity of conversation from different sectors. You know, as Liz points out, you know, we have sort of this, this wildlands land management, which often doesn't talk with the urban lands management. And you have different communities, whether that's indigenous communities or um, local urban center city communities who haven't had those conversations. And I think, you know, bringing that diversity has made a big difference in solutions uh, nationally and internationally. I think, you know, looking at, you know, Liz, I know you've done a lot of work in uh, looking at Australia and what they're doing on the fires in Australia. And I think, that, again, some public-private partnerships there have been, are sort of illustrative on what we could do here. <laughs> Thanks for the, uh, I don't know, the, the advertisement, Molly, we are working um, with ULI Australia on uh, some research about these dynamics in that country. So that's, a, I don't have conclusions yet, but definitely more to come. I think the other group that, you know, it's not specifically public-private partnerships, but the sense that I got from talking with, um, with ULI members for the research was that grassroots uh, organizations are playing a huge role in wildfire resilience, and there's some great partnerships happening between developers and like their local firewise communities um, to to help um, you know tenants and homeowners and others in the community maintain their properties and get educated about sort of what they can do and how they can do it. Um, but I think also especially you know, folks who live in the WUI, who live near these natural amenities, they, they live there for a reason. And, and one of the messages that I heard loud and clear was folks really care about those lands and they care about, you know, recreating and living there responsibly. Um, and one of the developers who's partnered with a local Firewise community really recommended to me that, you know, they host volunteer trail days and they host, um, you know, environmental education programs for their uh, development a few times a year to to help with that wildfire resilience and also just the community feel. And he said they they're maxed out on volunteer spots every time. And so I think we you know in talking about public private partnerships, you know Molly and I have focused a lot on governance and private real estate and you know utilities. And I think there's a real role for individuals um, through a lot of these grassroots groups. All right, that's what we've got for today. 
I would love to thank Liz and Molly for coming on the show and sharing some of their really essential perspectives on uh, building land use resiliency. Thanks also for all the support you guys have given me over the last few months. Um, We've hit 20,000 downloads in the last couple of days, and that feels pretty awesome. So I appreciate you guys sharing and supporting and subscribing and uh, talking about Life with Fire to your friends. It's been really cool to see the interest in this podcast, and I look forward to continuing to explore all these issues and talk with uh, some different, more diverse voices in the future and just keep this thing rolling. So thank you guys, and I'll catch you on the next one.